0: Welcome to Making Sense of Martech and a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. We're at the Martech Weekly newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. Uh, people who work in some of the world's largest media tech and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Now, we're doing something a little bit different before we kick off our show today. Uh, we're doing something called community shout-outs. What is community shout-outs? Well, there is a whole community of other podcasters and people creating content across the marketing technology landscape, and uh, we are massive fans of a variety of those shows and and uh, content creators. And so in each episode of Making Sense of Martech, we're going to do a small shout-out for a really great podcast. And uh, the kick, kick our first one off is Humans of Martech. Humans of Martech is... One of the most in-depth shows that discusses and explores what it's really like to work in the marketing technology industry. Uh, Recent episodes go deep in how marketers successfully use marketing technology roadmaps, how procrastinators should deal with the upcoming changes of Google Analytics 4, which is a headache for everyone working in the industry right now, along with building modern data models. So the folks over at Humans and Martech, they really get into what it actually looks like To work in this industry and to do great work and also you get to learn about how to best harness some of the most innovative technologies in the industry so if you'd like to go check them out go to humansofmartech.com and we'll be recommending more shows that you we think that you might like now back to our episode okay today we have tom goodwin he perhaps doesn't need so much of an introduction he's a very well-known figure across the digital and marketing landscape but um, Tom is a very fascinating thinker. Um, he's an international keynote speaker. He's the author of Digital Darwinism. Um, highly recommend you read that. Uh, fantastic book on innovation and change in the tech ecosystem. Um, he's also the co-founder of consultancy All We Have Is Now. Uh, he's a TV presenter and a regular contributor for the Guardian Tech Crunch, Forbes, GQ, Ad Age, Wired, Ad Week media post and digiday i'm pretty sure i've missed a few of those he's a very prolific guy Um, but in this episode we talk about progress and pessimism in technology um how we should create critique new tech um the idea of hype exhaustion what limits um progress working with change and how our history should inform our present and future and so now i give you tom goodwin how you doing I'm
1: good. I'm good. I'm
0: excited for this conversation. I am very excited. It's been a long time coming. So uh, thank you for joining us. Now, uh, you do a lot of different things. I'm just going to call that out straight away. You're an author. You're a speaker. Um, you're an entrepreneur. You are prolific across social media. You do TV as well. But which one do you actually like the most? I like them all. And I know um,
1: I'm sort of breaking the rules already because you're very clear asking for one. Um, I, I think I do what I do because I don't like not doing things that I enjoy. Um, and the hardest part about most people's careers, especially in a field like advertising, is you get brilliant people with amazing brains who have this wide level of interest and fantastic skills. And then we go, oh, that's great. You know, Let's make sure you don't do 90% of this and you do 10% of it well. Um, so I really enjoy the fact that I do very, very different things. Um, more helpfully, um, I really like making a difference. Like, like it dawns on me more recently that, um, not in a sort of lofty or worthy way, but it's, you know, as nice as it is to get a retweet or to see people, you know, invite you on podcasts or, or to get the, the, the sort of privilege like this of of talking to people. Um, I like it when actually why do turns into something, um, the TV show was great because you actually get to produce something you actually get to see it back on something. Um, I had quite a hands-on role. I obviously worked with brilliant people. who did a lot of stuff. But it, it was kind of the thing that I crafted. Um, and I learned loads about it. I really enjoyed um, the idea of having kind of real-time conversations where you could listen and you could sort of adapt to what they were saying and you could provoke them and you could learn from experts. So probably for different reasons to what people expect. I, I, I love the TV show because I learned a lot. Um, but I'm also really enjoying my consulting work because as time goes on, my reputation means that people that bring me in are expecting someone that's quite honest. They're expecting someone that is there to make a difference and therefore slowly, you know, you're able to work with big companies and get them to change the direction and do new things. So it's, it's making things happen. That really drives me at the moment.
0: Would you consider yourself as a creator or a creative type person or more of an entrepreneurial? Five months. Um,
1: you know, I, I'm definitely not an entrepreneur. Um, I, I realize that there is a, a thirst and a self belief and a drive that entrepreneurs have, which which I definitely, I definitely don't have. I have enormous admiration for people that that can make things happen in the way that they do. Um, the, the word creativity is quite weird because I think for a long time I assumed I wasn't. Um, you know, I'd be quite defensive about it. I just thought I had quite a lively mind that was quite curious. I think as time goes on, it's probably dawning on me that maybe I am quite creative. Um, and maybe, you know, asking good questions is actually quite a creative endeavor. Uh, maybe, maybe sort of writing where you're connecting ideas and expressing thoughts. Maybe that is, you know, business books don't feel very creative, but I feel like maybe I was quite creative when I did it and i think there there's a level of absolute leaps of faith and vulnerability um and sort of preciousness that i think i feel and i think they align quite strongly with with creativity so yeah i think i think i am creative but in a sort of unusual way
0: yeah it's interesting right like when we think about creativity we think about the great designers or the mm-hmm. great the folks that create a great ad but creativity comes in all shapes and sizes you know even how prolific you are across social media and how much trouble you stir up as well, Tom, (laughs) let's be honest here, (laughs) that um, it is actually quite creative, right? That there is a question, there are questions that are um, not often uh, asked. And I think that you sort of find those spaces that are very, quite interesting um, in in this section of different technologies and ways of thinking, but also, yeah, what kind of questions are people not actually asking, you know, different trends in the industry as well. So I think that's actually quite creative. I mean, I I don't know if I'd call you a content creator, you know, um, but thought leader is probably too parochial, you know, (laughs) when people call me a thought leader, I'm like, nah, I cringe at that. Like, that's not very, that's not kind of reflective. It's more, I like contributing ideas and concepts and the frameworks and ways of thinking to a industry. I'm not here to be a quote unquote thought leader, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: I sort of, I feel like it's more like a thought gatherer, um, like when when people don't really know you and they only sort of see what you produce, um, people obviously jump to their own conclusions and people sort of assume that, you know, maybe I've got a big ego and I think I'm right and I'm provocative because I get more attention or that, um, there's a sort of mean spirit behind what I do, um, and, and maybe I'm being defensive, but I genuinely think I'm really, really curious. Like I really love learning and actually these days to learn um one of the best ways to do it is to provoke quite raw and real conversations like the the reason i ended up in this situation is because I, i'd sit in a meeting and someone would sort of say well you know content is king and everyone be like, oh yeah 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 and i would think what the what the fuck does that mean like like um <laughs> what's like is that really Not true you know people sort of look through spreadsheets of click-through rates and i'd be like um you know, does any of this matter? Like, has there ever been any real research that showed that these click-through rates, you know, have any meaningful impact most of the time? You know, we're trying to get followers. No one knows what a follower is worth. Um, so I just sort of realized that I wasn't happy with the level of of, of sort of simplistic debate um, and people not being more ambitious and people not, um, not asking the questions that everyone's thinking. A lot of people quite often say to me when they meet me or online, you know, I, I like what you write, but you're just saying what everyone else is already thinking. Um, and I think that's really true, actually. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not developing new theories of relativity or, or sort of finding ways to fuse atoms here. Like, like I am just saying, really, like, um, are you sure? You know, we keep on talking about TV advertising and video advertising like they're very different things. You know, maybe, maybe they're quite similar in some ways. Um, so I sort of realised that I enjoyed. Um, the process of sparking conversations about things that actually really mattered. Um, And that is a very consistent theme. I may be all over the place. Um, I may be a sort of mess in how I think. Um, I may be very sort of difficult to understand. Um, But the one thing that really, really, really drives me and is consistent is that I enjoy, for the right reasons, provoking debate about topics that I think we should talk about more. And sometimes they're big meaty conversations about the world and, you know, government and no one really cares about those things. And they tell me to piss off because I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, or maybe they're tiny things about, you know, URLs or the color of blue pixels. But the, the consistent thing is that I'm genuinely posting things so the people who know way more about this than I do um, can say, look, Tom, you know, I've got a PhD in this. Uh, what on earth are you talking about? You know, that that's a sort of dream outcome for me in a way, so.
0: Was there a tipping point for you, Tom, in terms of that activity and that uh, curiosity in your career? Was there, say, a career change or a new job or something where it kind of tipped you into this mindset of asking really interesting questions?
1: Um, two things happened to me, um, and both are going to sound quite rude. Um I moved to America, and I realized the level of debate was non-existent. Like, um, I felt like I was sat in meetings where people were reading out the script to what you're supposed to say in a meeting. So the level of kind of obsequiousness, the level of kind of, you know political wranglings, the kind of degree to which no one would really express opinions, everyone everyone was sort of terrified to uh, to actually disagree with anyone. And that sort of irritated me so much because the whole point about going to America and working on accounts to spend like billions of dollars um, is that you get to be quite proud of a change. Like you get to be part of an ad campaign that's seen around the country. You know, you get to work with obscene amounts of media spend. Um, And I just sort of felt, again, these are not things that I'm proud of, but I, I just felt like I'm not really, I'm not really happy to sort of say the right things in order to go home on time. And to maybe get promoted and, you know, sort of have more money because what's the point, like, like, um, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be serving anyone. Um, and then the second thing is that I got, I wouldn't say I was fired, but I was working in a role where there was a general sense that the whole department wasn't really, um, working and therefore they kept on changing management. And it just sort of became apparent that our situation with the whole team wasn't really working out. So I ended up not having a job. Um, and because I had a visa attached to it, I had to leave the US and go back to the UK. And I'd spend sort of years in this role having unbelievably interesting conversations. would be working with huge airlines saying, well, what's the future of, of an airline experience? Um, what does um, streaming TV change about commerce? We'd be having these amazing conversations, like really good conversations with CEOs. Um, and then I'd sort of look and see what was written. And again, it was just nonsense, you know, it's just people sort of saying, you know, this is what content marketing can do for your brand. It was people saying, um, you know, 95% of purchases are digitally influenced. And I'd be thinking, you know, what does that mean? Like, what's a digital influence. Um, so I just got really angry. Like I'd, I'd sort of kind of lost my job. I'd kind of missed all the interesting conversations I'd had. Um, I kind of lost my place in America. Um, And I just thought, screw it, like, I'm kind of annoyed by this, like, um, let's sort of use what I think and and start writing. And I started writing to very significant outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they obviously completely ignored me because I don't know what I'm doing. And so then I'd write to smaller outlets and they kind of ignored me as well. And then I wrote for really small outlets and they published my stuff. And because I didn't need to sign off from corporate comms because I didn't really give a shit... They kept on realizing that my stuff was really performing well, because I was actually talking about things that needed to be talked about. I think in their words, they'd say I was offering a contrary opinion. But really what I was doing was just, you know, politely probing some of the assumptions that we had that I thought weren't true. Um, And I, I didn't carry on doing it because it worked. It was just that people kept on saying, well, actually, Tom, you know, can you write a piece for us? Um, So I became an unusual person where actually editors would sort of open all of my pitches and and probably say, yes, Um, it turns out that the more kind of brutal I was, the better things did. That never made me want to be more brutal, but it meant that I never felt like I should hold back unless it was unhelpful. Um, And then sort of, I wouldn't say things snowballed because I'm not on a private jet right now, Um, but things... Yeah, you know, momentum leads to more momentum, and then you ask get asked to do a keynote, and then you start charging lots of money for keynotes, and then you get asked to speak to the European Parliament, and then big companies want to work with you, and I guess it sort of creates a bit of a reinforcement cycle where that gives you um, it gives you confidence and a sense of, of permission yeah. to hold the microphone and to say things.
0: I think you'll shift into uh, say you know independent thought leadership, if we want to call it that, or, you know, you've sort of exited out of a company and started writing, you know, that I think is quite interesting, right, because you did touch on something which I think is so pervasive in our industry, which is that so many people are afraid to actually talk about what they think because of the fear of losing their job or having, creating political situation within their team or environment. You know, sometimes I'll post some controversial stuff. I would have CMOs, I would have execs saying, I'd love to chime in on this conversation because it's really interesting, but the the uh, visibility of me doing that would be harmful to my own career, maybe to my team as well. And I, I, there's a lot of fear, like actually preventing people to having a serious intellectual debate about something. And I think it's a massive problem.
1: I, I think it's probably the biggest problem in the entire industry. Uh, and it, it's not that it only manifests itself where people can't post things on LinkedIn. It's the people that are approving work, which is way too comfortable. It's the people that are carrying on, and um, repeating myths that limit our industry. It's the, some of the most contentious things, um, can't be discussed. I feel a little bit strange about this. I mean, I'm not that old, but when I entered the industry in about 2002, like it, it kind of was an industry that was full of big characters. You know, sometimes that meant that they were, you know, doing all sorts of horrible things as well. You know, I'm not, I'm not celebrating the sort of big swinging egos and dicks of these people, but there, there was a sense that there was almost a sort of privilege that came from a year that meant of all jobs that you could ever do in the world, you know, you can't go to sort of air traffic control and say, you know, why don't we try and land three planes at the same time? That would be fun, because um, it's a really important thing to get right. But when you're in an ad agency, it does seem like you could go, wait a minute, like, why are we targeting these people who have got no money? Why are we not? Why are we spending money launching this product is completely shit. Um, and it seems that it should be okay for people to express opinions that as long as you look at them without emotion, you realize that they're driven by people trying to do the right thing. And it's a good thing for everybody. Like, I I feel like Gar... Uh, our job is to be interested in stuff. It's to be interesting. It's to learn. It's to make people develop. You know, it's kind of like being a really bad personal trainer where, you know, it's not your job to be nice and to be loved. It's your job to kind of actually cause a bit of attention. Uh, it's, your, it's your job to make people work harder. Um, it's your job to develop these critical muscles. And I think. I am much, 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 much more fortunate than most in that I developed a platform that meant that when people were working with me, they kind of knew what they were getting. Um, so when I started writing, I then you know was offered really nice jobs and they were offering me jobs on the basis that they know what I'm about. I uh, mean, I was really lucky to work with two different holding companies who were incredibly supportive. Um, and most people don't have that. Most people don't kind of have um that sort of get out of jail card free. But I would love I mean I don't think I can do this as an individual, but I would love there to be a movement that recognizes the fact that talking about things that are very important. Um even talking about things that are contentious. You know, like we're, we're so political these days we don't even accept the fact that some people who buy our products maybe they like guns. You know, maybe they um, <laughs> maybe maybe they don't have very much money. You know, maybe Maybe they live in, 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 in sort of states that vote for policies that we find abhorrent. Um, but that doesn't mean we should ignore those consumers and patronize them. It means that we should go into these things with a really open mind and find connections and find middle grounds. And you only really get to that place when you ask quite difficult questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had a situation um, a couple of years back where in my consulting gig, I got um, a promotion into a senior role. And... Um, with that came a big fat salary. And as I was sort of growing in that role and with that company, I mean, the, what I could talk about online and what I could write about became increasingly constrained. Yeah. And because you're more visible, it's impacting on the brand and the clients and you know, the leadership as well. Right. When you're out there, you know, asking interesting questions, writing content, things like that. And when I got that big salary, I had a sort of revelation at that time when I was like, Actually, the worst thing for my career right now is to accept the salary, which is dumb, right? Like you want to accept promotions. You want to be recognized for great work. But for me, I saw it as a two things was that increasingly constrained um, intellectual life because I couldn't dialogue around the things I wanted to dialogue around. But second to that, I just became really comfortable, Tom. Mm-hmm. And becoming comfortable in your role, in your job, I think leads to, I think, a sense of intellectual mediocrity, right? Like you really look focused on keeping your job, you know, (laughs) or keeping the mortgage payments going, right? Or the car repayments going or being able to provide for your family or, you know, X, Y, and Z, why you need that money and that prestige or that particular role with that salary. You know, and I found that one of the things I think is limiting is that people get so comfortable now in a salaried role where everything is managed for them. They don't have to think so critically anymore. And that's why I think, you know, that's my hypothesis as to the human element into why we don't see a lot of innovation and change. But I want to switch gears a little bit here and actually talk about hype. And like, if, if I could put a blanket statement over the past three to four years, 2019 throughout the pandemic, and then now into 2023, I would say that, you know, it's been very exhausting. We've been through multiple hype cycles now, so much stuff that's been pushed in front of us from the, from Silicon Valley. You know, uh, so much change as well, I mean, across a variety of areas, you know, for example, we've had uh, the whole idea of Web3 and crypto and DeFi and Metaverse, which has com- almost completely been abandoned, but that was a massive idea. You know, we had some huge, I think you shared a TMW poster a couple of weeks ago, Tom, about- yeah,
1: Sorry, I didn't credit you. I didn't know
0: where it <laughs> I just No, that's control. okay. That's totally fine. It's great to have the stuff out there, but you know, we had the likes of McKinsey forecasting billions of dollars in value that's the metaverse is going to unlock and then all of a sudden no one's talking about it anymore not even mark zuckerberg's talking about it the person that sort of instigated that trend and now we're firmly in this next hype cycle around generative ai and i've seen your playful um sort of uh (laughs) experimentation with uh you know GPT and and all the variety of tools and um, your hypotheses and thinking around it but i mean it feels to me like this season of hype is just only accelerating. Like there's, it's only getting faster, more stuff, more novel ideas, if you want to call it that more sort of boosters and people to try and uh, leverage that for their own gain, you know, but how are you seeing this? I mean, why are we thinking about this endless sort of ecosystem of hype and pushing stuff that maybe doesn't really matter? Um,
1: I'm going to answer this in two parts, um, and my, my first part is to be a little bit contentious. Um, you know, perhaps almost for the sake of contentiousness. But I think um, fundamentally quite a lot of our jobs are actually not that hard. Um, They're not that fascinating and I'm not changing that quickly and quite a lot of technologies don't have a huge impact on them. And I think it's almost in our interest to sort of kid ourselves that we're living in these extraordinary moments in times where everything is new, because I think, I think this is just a sort of working theory, and, and I'm, I'm being sort of quite idiotic for the sake of it. But I, I think, in a way, we we can't handle the idea that maybe uh, I was on a, a huge sort of stage uh, about a week ago, and I was interviewed by someone who was a sort of CMO of one of America's largest sausage companies, um, and they were like, you know, what what trends should I be aware of in my role? And I kind of thought, you know, actually, um. If you make really good sausages, um, you know, actually Web3 probably doesn't make, mean that much for you. Probably VR headsets are not going to change things. Probably drones and the fact you can launch payloads into space more cheaply, 5G, edge computing, you know, AI is it, going to be very transformative and that's a whole different conversation. But but other than AI, like probably your job is to secure good distribution. It's probably to price your products fairly. It's probably to understand the changing consumer environment and the demographics of the country is probably to have branded assets that you use consistently is probably to have a good data strategy. Like it's probably quite boring. Like a lot of the stuff you do is probably going to be the same as you've been doing for five years. Um, so point one is I think there's a sneaky thirst for this. I think we we love the idea that we're living in extraordinary times. We love the idea that our jobs are really hard. We love the idea that we have to fly to San Francisco and meet up with people who make lasers. Because it's a bit like a sort of field trip. Um, so I think we're we're convinced that things are more exciting than they are. Um, number two, and this is actually really the answer. Um, it's in everyone's interest for these things to be big. It's in everyone's interest. Like if you're a media channel, you have to run things that get people to pay attention. If you're a management consulting firm, you have to produce reports that make people think that they're missing out on something. You know, could McKinsey put out a report saying, don't worry, everyone, 2023 is kind of like 2013 was, you know, just be a bit more cyber. Um, you know, they they have to produce something. You know, what, is, what does DTC brands mean if you make ice cream? Like, what, do, what does 3D printing mean to the sandal industry? You know, I think they, they have to put out these figures because that's how they drum up new business. It's done through sort of fear and paranoia. The technology companies have to be saying to be doing something because they're, Stock price multiples are those of tech companies. So they only make sense if there's an assumption you can move from being a $500 million company to a $1 billion company to a $2 trillion company. You know, so how on earth is Facebook going to be worth $600 million or whatever it is today, unless it's sort of got something in the pipeline? And broadly speaking, and it, it's fine, but most of these technology companies have not really had a good idea um, for about 10 years. Most of them have had one founding idea, which was amazing, and then they've implemented really well. Um, but in short, everyone needs this. Everyone needs to think that they have to change. Everyone needs to think that things are different. Everyone needs to think that the next big thing is a big thing. And then when you're in this space, you have to talk this language. Like if you go to like a conference and you say blockchain is not that big a deal, you know, three years ago, there would be this assumption that you're an idiot and you've not read enough about it. You know, two years ago there'd be this feeling, it's like, wow, like <laughs> this guy's like a real dinosaur. Like he doesn't think that blockchain's gonna change the title process for land in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was always thinking, actually, like, I've kind of thought about this stuff and I've been to Sub-Saharan Africa, and I don't think a title on the blockchain is gonna help that much when someone sticks an AK-47 in your mouth. Um, and what you realize is that the tech world is full of amazing, brilliant Wonderful, essential, extremely focused minds, and it's their job to understand the technology. Um, and because their companies are worth so much, and because they've done so well, and because they're so brilliant, um, we tend to listen to those people all the time. And therefore, the voices of people saying, "You know what? You know, maybe we should be talking about um, deaths of despair in America. Like maybe that's like a big topic we should be thinking about." You know, maybe we should be looking at the fact that no one gets married anymore. Maybe we should be looking at the fact that, you know, old people have have all the money in the world. Like old people have all of the money in the world. You know, maybe we should talk about these things. Like instead, there's been a sort of narrative, which is sort of forced upon us because it basically works for everyone. And the worst possible thing you can ever do in this industry is look like you're not excited about the thing everyone else is excited about.
0: Hmm. Do you know when the first television was invented, Tom? Take a guess.
1: You know what? I went to school with the grandson of John Logie Baird. Um, I, I would guess sort of 1909.
0: Ooh, close. 1927 was when oh, the first okay. television came to market. And yeah. you can imagine 1927. What's that? That's before world war two. We're kind of in, in between world, War one, world war two, in that sort of roaring twenties and. And back then there was a lot of technology hype as well. And that's produced vehicles, telephones, telegrams, you know, uh, naval ships, a lot of new technology, like was kind of ironic, actually a lot of innovation happened in the twenties, um, as it is now in the twenties in 2020, but what's interesting is that, well, you know, the television was a groundbreaking innovation, right? Like able to bring images and videos and music and whole variety of media into somebody's home all of a sudden, they can see it. They can feel it. How absolutely ground shattering, but then like nothing happened for, for like what, 60 years until the internet started coming along. And I think that what's behind a lot of the tech hype we're seeing today is this sort of aggressive push, um, on this narrative that says that we're always innovating, there's always a step change. That's just a couple years away. Oh crypto web 3 the technology was really hard to use it ripped a lot of people off became a catalyst for ponzi schemes but now just give it a couple more years tom just a few more years and it'd be really good oh no generative ai it's creating these like horrific looking videos and hallucinating and spitting out facts and errors for like even chat gpt does that oh but tom just wait a couple more years maybe two three more years and it'd be really good right and I feel like there's this is the pervasive narrative that keeps saying that we're only two or three years away from the next big thing. You've got to get ready. One of the most, I think, um, offensive things I think that Meta did was I was last year, I was at a keynote for marketers and um, it was an ma- internal marketing team, about 200 folks. They're all in a room and they had one of their sales reps from Meta come and present. And what was interesting was that the narrative was entirely about getting ready for the metaverse. And of course they're going to start pushing and selling that sort of technology back in 2022 but it was all about no this is just on the horizon guys you got to get ready this is the next television we got to get ready for this but it never kind of came and then straight after that uh that guy did his presentation an ad agency got up and then talked about how they can prepare for the metaverse and 200 marketers were all nodding their heads going oh yeah this is going to be life-changing our consumer experiences are going to have to completely change we to have to invest huge amounts of dollars And if you look at the sort of history of massive step changes in tech, particularly information technology, we have a big push. And then you have years, decades, even hundreds of years of nothing, of incremental changes and improvements. The original TV is nowhere near as good as it is today, but it's still the same format, right? It's a box that streams video content into your home and everyone watches it. And so I think that that's my hypothesis, but I'd love for you to critique that. Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that that sort of just a misplaced thinking in how people are approaching hype and new technology change?
1: Well, um, I've got lots to say on this. I'll try and talk quickly. Um, And also if we do go on and on, but it's interesting, hopefully that's okay. Um, I mean, the the main thing is if you just say it's early, uh, you can basically kind of disprove everyone who's a cynic uh, or a skeptic. You know, you can kind of say, well, you know, the same way. You know, that didn't work out. And then you can go, well, it's just early. Um, the laser disc didn't work out. Oh, it's just early. Like, There's a pretty unusual technology that it's just early doesn't get you out of. Um, we, we, um, I'm going to talk about this because it's fun. But can you imagine sort of growing up in sort of rural Pennsylvania in the sort of 1920s? And then um, somehow you end up in, in New York. Um, and then you get to New York and there are cars. Can you imagine seeing a car for the first time? Can we even on a road? I mean, like, what the hell is that? <laughs> oh, in <laughs> car, we've got cars now. And then as you sort of glance over there, you look up and you see a skyscraper. And you're like, what on earth? Like, we're building things that are like 60 stories high with like church clocks on the floor. I'm Like, what the hell is that? And then you sort of go in a building and there's like electricity everywhere and there's like a fast elevator that takes you up to the top. Can you imagine like subway system? Can you imagine how bananas it must have been? Um, And then the 1930s come along, and basically about half of the companies and the entire stock index like completely changed. And then for like the next ten years, like all of the companies in the stock market kept on rotating because everyone was going broke, and then other people were buying, and there was carnage. There's carnage on the financial markets. You know, now we will have like the sort of thirteenth largest bank. Uh, go bankrupt in America and everyone's like, oh my God, everything's different now, everything catastrophic. It's like, no, it's pretty normal to live in an era where these things happen. Um, but we we are obsessed with this idea of faster technology. To be clear, I, I do think that technologies develop more quickly. I do think we're on the edge of some extremely profound technologies that we should take very seriously. I think that AI, um, I have a very open mind, to the idea that it could be radically transformative to our entire industry and make amazing things possible. Um, but we should also accept the like you say with your theory, um, change always takes a lot longer than people realize, because the first time we take the technology, we tend to use it in quite trivial ways. The first uh, inventions around electricity were things like the electric iron, the electric light, uh, the electric oven. And everyone was like, who cares? My servants do all this stuff. Like, if you've got enough money to have electricity, then you've got servants. So for years, everyone was looking at electricity going, I'm not sure if this is going to hang around for a while. And then people made brand new things like people made the television people made uh, the telephone people made the radio people made the microwave they invented the refrigerator and like actually it was those things that got built on top of it around it that changed things and i think we are still in my opinion and lots of people will disagree we are still in the really early stages of the internet but we still don't really know how to talk to each other we still don't really know, you know, do you, are you supposed to text your boss if you're running late these days? Uh, do you have to text them if you go to the toilet? Do you have to text them if you go to the doctor? Do you have to text them if you're going to work from home for two days? <laughs> um, we don't really know, like, what should a, you know, if we take a TV ad and stick it on the internet, like, what should that look like? Um, and that's what makes it amazing. Like, it's it's a really, really amazing time to be alive because we have all of these incredible tools that can do unbelievably amazing things we haven't really started to do it we're still taking passports with us you know we we can sort of pay for things with our face but then we still have to sort of squiggle our signature on it um we still have to sort of use keys to get into houses you know we live in this sort of amazing liminal moment where slowly we'll see the world sort of reinvented around what this technology means um and it'll be an amazing time to be alive
0: You know, one thing, it's, you know, more at a, say, the philosophical level, but, you know, the one that thing that surprises me, continues to surprise me, is that the internet hasn't uh, brought us to World War III yet. And the reason I say that is, if you think back at information history, um, the Gutenberg Press was that surreal uh, moment in time where books became available to the mass population. You know, it's before the, the Gutenberg press, it was really hard to find books because they were all hand copied. Um, a lot of the information was controlled by religious bodies and the governments, and, uh, it wasn't until the Gutenberg press that came along where it, actually put words that could be distributed and scaled to hundreds, thousands, millions of people. And what that led to was, you know, like decades of, um, religious wars. It caused sort of the great reformation and the reformation was a schism between the catholic church and the protestant church well it was a sort of the formulation of a protestant church but what's fascinating about that it was it was the technology of being able to distribute content easily cheaply and um to far more people that sort of caused that schism and caused that in conflict across europe And we're kind of seeing that same thing with the internet today, right? But we're not, we haven't sort of devolved into, well, you could probably say Russia and Ukraine, right? That's um, an ongoing conflict. But we're not sort of in a World War III situation given the amount of information distributed to people. Like uh, I look at our period in history right now, Tom, and we're living really at the pinnacle of human history. You know, no other time has humans been able to access information like we do. Uh, connect with people around the world, even the fact that we can jump on this call and have a a thoughtful conversation is uh, mind-blowing to anybody who lived 100 years ago. And so I'm sort of surprised that most of the status quo in society is still as it is um, with uh, this massive change with the internet. And I agree with you. It's so early. We are still so early in how to use this powerful technology. And you kind of see that playing out with online discourse, which I think we'll roll into next. But before I move on, Did you have a comment or thought on that? I mean, you know, I think it is quite interesting thinking about our moment in history right now.
1: It's amazing. Um, A Very interesting moment. I think I've got two ideas in my head that sort of jar against each other. Um, One is that if someone sort of broke into our houses or our parents' houses 30 years ago and said, I've got a sermon to deliver you. We're going to invent this thing called the internet. It means you can call your mum whenever you want and it's free. Uh, It means you can have like pen pals with people across the world and it's free and it's immediate. It means you can read every book ever written for free. It means you can sort of look at poetry. You can see beautiful images. You can listen to classical music and we can probably do our jobs more quickly. You would obviously imagine a reality that's quite different today. You'd imagine everyone would be very reasonable. Everyone would be very informed. Everyone would would sort of think of ignorance as being the worst sin because we'd have access to everything. Um, and relative to what we could be living in, it's quite hard to be, to sort of not be disappointed. Like, it, like it's quite hard to see how the internet is just full of crap that's sort of banal and is also full of things that are just not true. You know, for some reason, the reason I've been getting angry about graphs that are not using their y axis that goes down to zero, as you keep <laughs> thinking- Keep on seeing people be like, oh, I can't believe how dangerous it is in Texas. Like, look at these, numb- look at the hospital admission rates. I mean, you look at the way up you're like, wait, minute. these are tiny bits. Um, but so I'm disappointed in our ignorance. But then I also realize, like, fundamentally, and I'm going to sound like a real hippie here. I, fundamentally, most people are good. Um, fundamentally, most people are really reasonable. Fundamentally, most people want to be safe. They want to be listened to a little bit. But they kind of want to have a nice family and kids and feel a bit proud of what they've done. And they don't really want to get noticed that much when past a certain point. And I think one of the things that really freaked me out in COVID, like, well, there are many things, but one of the things that I thought was most crazy, I've um, been like the hype cycles we were talking about. Um, basically, you saw people only really exist online. And I think everyone went completely completely nuts um and that might mean in sort of quite gentle ways you know like nfts which were just the most stupid idea you could ever imagine um it may be sort of weird things like clubhouse where everyone suddenly thought that really bad radio you know was the future of entertainment um or it may be more sort of sinister things like anti-vax movements or pro movements that were about removing people's freedom point blank and everyone went Absolutely crazy. And I think that was because we were only really sort of living our lives online, and algorithms are sort of designed to one, make us angry, and two, make us find people in our tribe. And I was lucky because I was living in Florida the whole time. And you could go online and you could see the most insane, fervent, like angry conversations about everything. And then you sort of go down the street and you'd see people just having a nice chat in the shop. Um, You know, I played golf at this sort of local golf club, which is full of like completely sort of random people across the world and completely different demographics. And you'd be playing golf with someone that thought that, you know, vaccinations were going to cure everything. And someone else that thought they were, you know, going to kill everyone. And you'd have these really real conversations where people were incredibly reasonable and people would listen to each other. And people would understand that everyone is a person doing their best. And I think the more time we spend together, this makes me sound like a sort of bit of a hippie, but the more time we spend around people that are quite different to us, the more we realize that very, very few people are like stupid and very, very few people are angry in reality. And it's just the sort of internet that whips us into a, a, a fury. And I think as long as we can maintain the fact that we spend time in reality and around other people, we're going to be fine.
0: Well, even like looking at the internet, like there are different spaces where that really applies. So even just compare and contrast Twitter, Twitter and LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn is far yeah. more polite, far more reasonable, far more nuanced conversations of yeah. better quality because because people actually have reputation on the line. You kind of see these like shades of um of debauchery as you go into different spaces right like Twitter allows for anonymity Elon Musk is I don't know what he's doing trying to fix that but you know online anonymous accounts mean that people can you know and it just introduces a lot of bad actors but it's a far more angrier place right um the quote tweet button is part of that but and then you go even further into somewhere like Tumblr where it even gets worse, right? You kind of see even, you know, humans' worst quality, humanity's worst qualities on display there on, on Tumblr. Then you go into sort of eight kind of 4chan and it's even worse again, right? So I think it's like shades of degradation and online uh, discourse, you know, to the most safe, the safe harbor like LinkedIn, to the most chaotic places like 4chan. Um, and I think what you're trying to say is that like, um, during COVID, like all of those kind of places collapsed. Uh, yeah. and, um it became a reality. Yeah, and then, you know, they led to a whole bunch of, I would say, myths, and you mentioned myths before, which is NFTs was going to be the next big thing in content creation and, you know, um and online commerce. And it didn't because it was a fantasy clubhouse, same deal. They just actually this week they laid off of right um a huge amount of their stuff. Um because and A sixteen Z very prominent, very influential VC firm funded them, but we all knew that it was a pandemic app. We all knew yeah. that it was, it was nonsensical for people living in the real world. But yeah. we had what, two years of collective delusion. And then we're kind of coming out of that. I feel like, you know, I forget the name who, of that person who does a quote, but you know, they say that, uh, when the shore comes or the tide goes out, you know, you kind of see who's naked and uh, maybe you don't yeah. talk about that, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it but kind but of feels it... like that post pandemic. Like a lot of, we've actually seen a lot of, tech companies collapse, huge amounts of layoffs huge write downs and valuations for companies those over the past 12 months. And yeah. my question to you, Tom is like, how do you, how are you thinking about this? Are you pessimistic about the future or how are you sort of thinking about this sort of shift out of COVID and a lot of these ideals and ideas kind of collapsing on us? Um, so I was born in 1979.
1: Um, and that means I kind of remember the world before the internet. And that means my early internet experience was a sense that you went somewhere. Um, you know, you'd sort of be living in a shared flat and you'd have a computer in the living room and you might sort of say, Oh, you know, Gary, can you get off the phone? I want to go on the internet for a bit. And you sort of went to this thing. But but for us it was always a kind of place that you went to. And I think subconsciously in my mind, I find social media not to be life. But it's like a room that you go in. And this is not to sort of be dismissive about it, but I feel like subconsciously when I'm in LinkedIn, I kind of know what the etiquette is and I know how people behave. And when I go to Twitter, I know it's going to be an absolute shit show. And therefore, and this is perhaps slightly distasteful of me, I don't really take Twitter that seriously. Now, for a lot of people, they really do. And there's a lot of great harm that comes from Twitter. And there's an enormous potential for it to be very damaging. But I would like to think that as a kind of society, it may be helpful for us to have a framework around these things where we realize that these places are not reality and these people are not themselves. They're playing a character. And people are almost using it as a release. You know, I'm pretty sure if you were actually, it'd be probably a very bad TV show, but if you sort of went around to people's houses and just went, you know, excuse me... um. You know, Samantha, you just sort of told that person to go fuck themselves and then kill everyone, you know, (laughs) are you okay? (laughs) Um, Then sort of be like, oh, you know, I was just sort of, I don't know, I don't know what came over me. Like I just sort of felt a bit angry for bit. i had a really bad day. I think fundamentally it may be that people are kind of performing a bit in these spaces and they're using them for a bit of a release. And I think that Twitter's anonymity allows people to almost take on um, sort of their alter egos. That doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's not terrifying. It doesn't mean there aren't people who are having tragically bad times as a result of this. But I think we may have to uh, take comfort from the fact that this almost is a sort of um, a chat room where everyone just goes nuts. When it comes to the future, um, it, it's very hard for me to look at trend lines that have basically gone up really quickly or quite slowly but very consistently that basically make the world better for absolutely everybody now within that there are millions or billions of people that suffer huge tragedies that have miserable lives that are treated terribly Um, and life is really unfair but i still feel like those lives are generally improving Especially away from places like America um, and some parts of Europe, you know, the average citizen in the world is having a much better time. Um, the average half of the world um, is having a much much better time um, at, in almost every way. You know, whether it's democracy, whether it's literacy, whether it's life expectancy, whether it's access to water, um, whether it's rates of malnutrition, whether it's abuse towards women, whether it's uh, religious wars, whether it's wars as a whole. You, you you'd you have to be a little bit selective in how you frame things to come to the conclusion that by and large people's lives are not going to get better i am massively aware that there are kind of two big things that that sort of spanners that people try to throw in this one is sort of global warming um which a bit like every other trend line you know you, you just have to say it's early Just wait, and that kind of wins every argument. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The other is sort of AI. Um, I I don't know enough about it to have an opinion on AI that's worth listening to, but somehow the idea that it's going to take over the world and kill us all, I find a bit strange. You know, I'd quite like my computer to talk to my printer. Um, When that starts happening, then I'll think that they can sort of take over the world. Um, And global warming, I think, will be a a shift, it will be a change of parameters. And it will be a challenge and generally speaking challenges are things that we do a really good job of overcoming Like challenges lead to innovation challenges lead to newness challenges mean that we build new cities in places we haven't lived before you know maybe those cities are not going to have massive freeways running through them and they're going to have you know surgeries and street corners and stuff um so i find it quite hard not to be optimistic but whenever i say that um, i will get a, a torrent of emails with people saying You know, that's just you as a white guy. You know, it's not like that for me. Um, And I don't really know how to deal with that because there is a level of privilege that everyone um, has and some people have more of. But that doesn't mean it's distasteful to be optimistic. Um, My optimism comes from a sense of relativity um, and historical trends and numbers. Um, And I actually think that optimism is the best place for us to come up with solutions from. Um, if you go around telling people that there's, there's no point having kids, and that everyone's evil, and that everyone hates each other, that's not really gonna be conducive to an environment where we come up with solutions. Um, if we say everyone's amazing, like we have incredible minds, anyone can do anything, we've got this, but we need to sort of focus. Like actually, that's a pretty nice rallying cry for people.
0: Yeah, I think there's sort of two two. Two very different ways of thinking about optimism is the techno optimism, optimism and the mm-hmm. human optimism, and the techno optimism mm-hmm. is what you see, you know, a lot in in our space and in the media space, is you know there's new technology that's going to change the world, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but really, I think what you're getting at is that are uh, you probably more optimistic about humans and their potential to solve problems and to make the world a better place, and you know your underlying belief there that most people are good. And most people are reasonable and most people actually want a better world for their children most people want a better world for their society and they'll work on those things and there'll be a lot of nonsense and crap and um, stuff that doesn't make sense in the churn of that but then out of that we'll get things like refrigerators or televisions or airlines uh, things that are genuinely good for people you know (laughs) good for the world um because people decided to sort of fix that problem right you know what's the difference between say the wright brothers and elon musk not a big difference, you know, um, I think those folks, they're trying to do some really interesting stuff to solve problems that they think worth, are worth mattering, that are worth actually pursuing. It's an, creating a, f- um, a, a way for humans to fly versus, um, trying to get to Mars, I mean, you know, those are two really interesting goals. So would you declare it like that? Is that a good way to separate it out or would you think differently never, about it?
1: I've never thought about it in the terms, but I love it. Um. You know i am incredibly pro-human and therefore i think people think i must um as a corollary be sort of anti-tech um and i'm certainly not anti-tech i'm anti-tech that gets developed in isolation from empathy like i'm anti-tech that gets done because we can do it rather than because it's helpful um i think people misunderstand those two things you know there was it's not the most exciting news in the world but there was a a sort of video of a lady in china sort of beating up a robot with a with a bat because oh, yes. yeah. and, i saw that and I'm not, I'm not like standing next to her beating it up but I, I get it um and that doesn't mean i think that robots are stupid that doesn't mean i think that car plants shouldn't use robots that doesn't mean i hate self-checkout tills. that doesn't mean that you know i think they're taking our jobs like far from it like robots are incredible mm-hmm. um but we need to be really thoughtful about how we use them. And I think when you're in a really delicate, um, emotional, intimate space like a hospital, to think that customer service should come from a robot is sort of a very pro-technology opinion and a very sort of anti-human opinion. And it's things like that that frustrate me. And actually, if we make reasonable assumptions about the progress of technology, there are going to be... Um, lots of jobs that transition, not as many as people think, but there'll be lots of sort of jobs that transition to being more automated and more robotized. Um, And then you start thinking, well, what are the places where it's really important to have people and people that are treated really well and people that are given the right information and people that are empowered to make decisions? And it would be things like reception desks and hospitals would probably be top of that list. Um, So I, I wish we could sort of have a more nuanced and reasonable and complex discussion about these things because robots are amazing. Not everywhere. Technology is incredible, but that doesn't mean we should worship technology, we should worship ideas and imagination.
0: But yeah, the a lady that, you know, is smashing a robot in a hospital, you don't know what the story is behind that. She may yeah. have a mental health condition and something set that person off. It may have been an uncomfortable interaction with that robot. We don't know the story behind why that happened, right? Three weeks ago, I went out for dinner, um, me, my wife, and my kids, and a robot served us, right? A ro- like, we were really? a fried tree can join, and a robot served us. And uh, my kids loved it. It was hilarious. I had a little green, and it showed some ads while they were serving us, you know? And, um, you know, what was funny is I looked around the corner, and I was, like, looked in the kitchen, and the staff were just as busy trying to fill up the plates of these robots that are going out into the, the dining room. And it's like, is this really actually automating any jobs? <laughs> I mean, what is it its another what ten seconds to get out into the dining room and and put some plates on the table. It was gimmicky. It was fun, you know. They, the kids loved it, you know. So cool, whatever, right? That's like a marketing gimmick for a restaurant chain. Fine, you know. But as you said, like it's a very private, very sensitive space—a uh, hospital, you know. And and I, and again, I just think that the optimistic view on this—the the book, the um, the Steel Man—is. That, yeah, there's going to be a lot of nonsense like that. There's going to be a lot of uh, just really bad ideas. And if we can limit the bad ones as much as possible and embrace the good ones that make a lot of sense and make us more productive and healthy and successful and, you know, happier overall, then we're probably going to um, make more progress to the things that really matter to um to people. And so I think it is interesting, but I, I want to talk about your consulting work a little bit with um, all we have is now, you know, you've been doing this for how many years, for three or four years now, Tom? Uh, for about four years. Yeah, yeah, for about four years. And you do a lot of consulting with, um, uh, advertising folks, marketers and CMOs and also, you know, tech executives and a whole variety of people. But, um, I want to sort of get a sense from you in terms of progress in particular marketing, where, um, CMOs and leaders in this space, where are they limited in their thinking? What are the sort of things that just tend to pop up that sort of limit progress or limit sort of growth within a company? Um, what do you see normally?
1: Um, I mean, most of my work is is working more with CEOs um, and CIOs and sort of business transformation teams. Like I've sort of, I love advertising, but um, I like looking at advertising from afar rather than in it. But what I see, um, I mean, you you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier by talking about fear. Um, I'm sort of lucky because people tend to choose me because they are the people that want to make a difference. You know, so they're asking for someone either to make their current consultants work harder. You know, so I basically become the annoying person that's in the room that's not going to let the consultants get away with the same crap they've been telling everyone else. Um, or they're looking for a kind of a power within their organization uh, to sort of bolster them to drive the kind of change they want to make. Um, but I think we, it's quite hard to answer this question quickly. Um, I think we see quite a lot of problems. I think marketers have, have become removed from their um, customers. I think marketers, in a world of all these data, I think they actually in, in, instinctively understand their customers less than ever before. Um, there's a lot of marketers that are frustrated that they have all of this knowledge about customers and all these insights, but they're still downstream of, of the product teams, especially in digital organizations. The metaverse and Facebook would be a very good example of that. Um, so I think they're frustrated by the fact that they don't get to affect the products and services more. Over time, the sort of CMO role used to include things a bit more like customer service, a bit more like delivery, go to market strategies, and now increasingly it becomes a comms role. Um, so I think they're frustrated by that. Actually, they're very frustrated at lots of things. Um, but I think they they sort of look to me to get a more broad um, picture of the landscape, like actually. Um, in this world where everything is touted as being the next big thing, um, what are the things that they should be focusing on that perhaps are not given enough time? Um, a big one these days would be retail media. You know, what, what kind of uh, strategy to do it up for retail media? Another one might be, um, you know, circumventing the path to purchase. How do you make it easier for people to buy the products and services you have? It might be experimentation in the D 2 C space. Like how do they do that? What team do they need? Um how do they work with startups? Like what's their process for figuring out if they should buy them, partner with them, um, do things in house? So you actually get a remarkable width of, of challenge. But I think most of it, um a lot of it is driven by uncertainty. Like a lot of the people I work with, um, by definition, they've been brilliant at their jobs for, you know, 15, 25 years. And then in the last five years, people have been asking questions that makes them feel like maybe there's a vulnerability there, you know, maybe because they, they haven't done something with a YouTube star, you know, that means they're bad at their job, you know, maybe because they didn't do like an NFT based loyalty program, you know, maybe that means they're ignorant. And I think there's a vulnerability where people are thinking, wait a minute, I thought I was good at my job. And now things around me are making me think that like maybe I'm not, um, and quite often I meet with them. and giving them a sort of overview of the landscape. And then we come to the conclusion that actually the main principles, the main sort of dynamics of marketing are not that different. You know, like the importance of brand has not gone away. The importance of making things that people understand has not gone away. The importance of distribution in the right place has not gone away. A lot of the tactics have changed, but but broadly speaking, a lot of what I do is is, uh, I'm not trying to be reassuring. It just ends up that I am reassuring.
0: Mm. I think one thing you you mentioned which is quite interesting is this sort of um abandonment of instinct in marketing Mm -hmm. and you could probably say across most sort of business functions is that you know like trusting your gut is another way of saying that and uh in marketing uh so because i think the internet sort of forced this is that because we can measure the things that happen on the internet that leads to a certain way of thinking about what's true and what's not and, mm-hmm. um, and then that informs, you know, a marketer's worldview, it informs what's valuable to them. Is it clicks and conversions or is it reach and awareness? Is it influencing and captivating an audience or is it getting them to buy your product? You know, like it, it creates, I think this, um, this challenges of like, yeah, you're trusting your gut, right? Like what's the right message here? You know, I think for marketers for whatever decades have sort of trusted their gut on the right message, um, in the right. Sort of way to get their product to a consumer, and you know you look at history and you're like, well, they did a pretty good job. I mean, <laughs> you know, a lot, there's a lot of really fantastic brands that are still around today. I mean, you know, like even look at Coca-Cola, right? You know, Coca-Cola just announced with, um, I think with Bain and Co, they have a generative AI sort of um a method for them to do to scale their advertising. And it's like, okay, cool. There's probably like what maybe one percent of their marketing budget will go towards experimenting with that stuff. It's a fancy press release and great news for Bain, but I mean, in reality, they're probably sticking to their guns with you know the the TVCs and the billboard ads and all the other stuff they do and spend a bucket load of ad, ad dollars on as well because of the instincts of the execs in their business. You know, a lot of, despite the change, there's not a lot of human change. I mean, the principles around capturing, capturing someone's attention or motivating to, them to buy things doesn't change a lot. It's just the internet has made it more perhaps visible. But I like your point there about um, instincts and sort of tapping into that. I think that's something that, only comes from a genuine wanting to do the work. <laughs> you know, It comes from a place of like inspiration, a genuine excitement and wanting to actually do the work. And I think they a tenacity to understand your customer as well and who they are and what they might need from you. Um, so that's really good. But I do want to finish up with a quote from Digital Darwinism. And, uh, it's a fascinating book. I mean, for me, I just, I could not put it down as every single page was like just a, a different, unique way of thinking about disruption. Um, but there's one quote, um, which says that I wonder sometimes if we need the opposite to agile, we need sudden leaps forward. And then periods of stability, we need systems and processes designed in tandem with each uh, each other. We need to leap to create brand new entities based on the latest thinking in software and periods of calm where we change little. It's a bold new way to think about change. It's counter cultural, but it's interesting to ponder. Um, I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit for us. Just to understand, I guess, how you're thinking about working within change and embracing change. And, you know, what are some uh, of you, you mentioned in the book, you know, agile is one of those sort of anti-patterns that don't really work so well when trying to deal with change in a business. But I would love for you to unpack that for us or for the audience.
1: You know, this is a good, a good example of, of things which are quite me. So it's quite sort of contrary, but not deliberately so. Um, and it's not necessarily right, but it brings about an interesting debate. Um, you know, if I think about my iPhone, uh, my iPhone's amazing. Um, I presume on, I'm on sort of iOS 14 or something, 14.2.1. I've got no idea, but it's, it's a very high number. Um, and that means 14 times in the last, I don't know, 15 years, how long it's been, um, they've sort of Almost completely sort of rewritten um, the iOS, um, and I remember I think it was about iOS three. They went from sort of skewer morphism to a flat design. And trust me, over the last fourteen years, it's got a lot better. Um, but they must be shipping an update, a major update um, every two or three weeks. They must be shifting, um, shipping like a fairly small update to deal with those updates. The week after, they're probably doing another update of the update to do sort of uh, you know fixes for bugs. Uh, they are continually working their nuts off to make something that over the last seven years has not really changed that much. Um, and this is more of a metaphor rather than advice for Apple software developers. But I wonder what happened if in that seven year period, yeah, rather than shipping something every week um, and course correcting, what would have happened if they tried to ship something really good um every six months well what if um four years ago they embarked on a process which is to completely rethink what ios should be um and i'm not going to give you examples of, of what that would be like because it's quite hard but i could tell you in private um but what we have is this sort of constant iterative feeling and this constant sort of course correction and incredible amounts of busyness and meetings and brilliant minds working their nuts off And over the course of this whole period of time, we haven't really seen that much change. I'm not complaining, like it's still amazing. I'm just sort of using this as an example. Um, And I see this all the time. I don't actually do much work with startups um, because they don't like paying me money or they don't like my advice. Um, But whenever I meet with a startup in a very friendly way, um, I'll sort of say, you know, "What what are you doing? What are you working on? And they'll be like, oh, actually, you know, we've just changed our strategy. You know, we used to be a provider of meals for, know, uh, hospitals that was on demand, and then that didn't really work out. So then we sort of shifted to being like a bicycle provider that did other people's meals, and then that didn't really work out. So we've decided to be a sort of a YouTube, um, not a YouTube, an inner tube repair company, and then that didn't work out. So then we sort of pivoted back to hospitals, but we thought we'd actually do dry cleaning. Uh, And I'm just sort of deliberately being obnoxious to make a point. But it seemed very obvious, they never really had any idea what they were doing. Like, like at no point did they really go, this is a great idea, it has to exist. Instead, they were sort of feeling their way through the market and they were sort of pivoting their their approach all the time. And there is a kind of mantra within software, and I see it all over Twitter, like, you know, always be shipping, um, <laughs> always be shipping, I'm like, no, <laughs> like, don't ship, like I would think like. Go and talk to like your meanest best friend and say, is this a good idea? Like go and drive to like a strip mall in a really shitty part of America and look at people. Like give this to your like daughter at school and ask her to tell her friends about it and see what, like be thinking, like be thinking, be designing, Um, come up with a really bold plan and then work your nuts off to make it happen. And that doesn't mean it shouldn't be like an MVP. That doesn't mean it should be developed fully. That doesn't mean that you should bear everything on it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to change. But we have to sort of change the pace of, of, of what we're doing, because I think everyone's working really hard and not really accomplishing something. And I think um, that there's a, there's a very odd sport called Kabaddi. Um, and in Kabaddi, you basically sort of you have two teams in two opposing halves of a course, um, and you sort of have to hold your hands and then you have to go into the other person's half and try and touch them and they have to try and touch you. Um, while you do that, you hold your breath and you have to shout Kabaddi as you're holding your breath. Um, listeners to this are thinking, what the hell's going on here? Um, but when you see people play kabaddi they sort of jostle a bit, they sort of maneuver a little bit, they sort of maneuver a little bit more and then they pounce. And when they go for it, they go really quickly. And I think what we're playing generally is kid football where everyone's running around trying to get the ball. Um, and actually, what we need to play is kabaddi which is to take a bit of time to think, do a little bit of strategy and then like go for it like hell and then retreat back quickly. Uh, in your readers' notes, you will be getting uh, um, some of the best moments of Cabadi from the 2022 se- season, um, but it becomes quite an interesting framework. And it it's not right, and it's not right for everyone. And Agile's not wrong, but hopefully it will make people think about, a little bit more about their busyness versus thinking.
0: I think I think this uh, the attitude of always be shipping, which is a very like Silicon Valley thing to do, right? Yeah. Like culturally. If you go and spend some time in San Francisco, the folks there are like, yeah, we've got to be shipping every day, right? We need a new release all the time, uh, particularly VC funded tech companies, which are, let's be honest here, the greyhounds that wealthy investors are, divest- uh, are betting on, right? I feel like uh, a lot of that sort of behavior is driven by investors that are wanting to see progress constantly. And that's like, as long as you continue to ship and so pr- show progress and that you have that rapid sort of iteration cycle, then the misplaced thinking there is that that will lead you to something really groundbreaking, where in reality, you're probably just polishing a turtle a little bit more. But don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, the, the example you give of the iPhone is um, a really good one because that's been a good 15 years of just iterating a new feature every once in a while. You know, now we're getting where like the new product releases every year for iPhones are so incremental. They look the same. They feel the same. They're slightly updated, right? But then Apple once in a while will come out with something new, like the M1 chip a couple of years ago, and it's incredible. They've gone on to their own silicon and their own technology, drastically increased the performance of their laptops and now their smartphones. And so I think that there are some areas where that really helps, but taking time to be deliberate and thinking and consciously sort of working through what is it that we actually need to deliver to our customer. And now I wouldn't say that this is an argument against say, divergent thinking. In that you're looking, you're creating a variety of options, you're designing a whole bunch of different things to look at. I think that's really helpful for the creative process because you want to sort of uncut, you want to lift up all the stones and see what's under them. But, you know, you, I think getting to that sort of more um, pointy end of going, okay, what's the thing that we actually want to put in front of our customer? That's the thing we want to pick. You have to be very conscious of that and not just constantly thinking about shipping for the sake of just shipping stuff. So... It's a good point to raise and a great way to to finish our episode. So Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where I actually find you on the internet? I mean, you're all over most platforms, but um, yeah, where can we find you when interacting with you most?
1: Uh, if you want to see my like business side, go to allwehabisnow.co. It's my company site. Uh, if you want to see me on Twitter where I'm most raw and strange, uh, it's, Tom F. Goodwin, same for LinkedIn. Um, I'm going to be doing a digital transformation training course soon, so if you like the stuff I talk about, um, you will hear about that. I'm going to have a newsletter on Substack, which I'll um, put out in the in the notes as well. I'm slowly turning into a media empire. I'm like the new CNN.
0: <laughs> what would you? What would be the acronym? Tom TGN. Tom Goodwin. <laughs> Tom Goodwin News. Has- just don't become well, a fine. news anchor for me, mate. Don't don't do that. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. We'll be regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the Martech Weekly. Uh, folks who are like Tom Goodwin, who are really at the forefront of innovative thinking, asking provocative questions. So if you'd like to subscribe, hit that button in your podcatcher to subscribe to get an episode wherever you receive it. And also reach out to us in the Martechweekly.com and you can read and listen there as well. Tom Goodwin, thanks for joining us and Making Sense of Martech.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.